If your happy ending is no more joint pain, please try Sierra Sil with a money-back guarantee. It's all-natural joint pain relief that's changed our lives. Sierra, like the mountains, and Sil, like silicon. Go to sierrasil.com. Use the code DRIFT for 10% off. Hello, my name is Erin, and welcome to Drift, a place of fables and journeys, of relaxation and peace. Made possible by Envy Pillow. Created by two registered nurses in Canada, Envy Pillow has a unique ergonomic design to reduce wrinkles, help with TMJ pain, and align your neck and spine. Learn more in the morning at Envy, E-N-V-Y, pillow.com. Tonight's story is The Golden-Headed Fish. Adapted for you here by Ava MacArthur. Before we head off to Egypt, let us be as lazy as a sphinx and just be. I want you to take a deep breath. As you inhale, prepare to let go of all of the day's cares. This time is for you. And as you exhale, say these words. I am safe I am loved. I am at peace. Great. Now, if you can, tense up your feet, your calves, your thighs, and your backside, and let them go. And we'll work our way up, tensing your abs, your pecs, your shoulders, arms, and hands even clenching into fists if you'd like. Now release them all, feeling warmth surging as you relax. Make your hips heavy into your bed. Relax your neck, your jaw, your forehead, and your eyelids. Is your head heavy into your pillow? Good. And with one last inhale... And exhale. We're ready. Let's drift. A long, long time ago in Egypt, there stood a grand palace. Its bricks hot to the touch as it basked in the scorching sun. Guards stood tall outside, protecting their monarchy with spears and shields in the sweltering heat willing themselves not to wilt like thirsty flowers. Beyond the sizzling sands that surrounded the castle was a moat with a dock on which royal workers could often be found perched during their breaks, their feet dangling in the cooling water of the Nile River. One such day, though, not a sound could be heard in this still desert except for the cries coming from inside the old Egyptian palace. Prayers for a sick king, calls for the gods to show mercy and provide a cure. Usually, King Kafani would be sitting on his royal throne, wearing shimmering golds and expensive jewels, as fan-bearers cooled him by waving large palm leaves. 
But now, the mighty ruler was laid low, a strange disease consuming him. He barely had enough energy to lift his head off his pillow. This strong man's once golden skin, now pale and clammy. Perhaps cruelest of all, this mysterious sickness had even taken away the king's eyesight, the way a thief snatches away a most precious and jealously guarded treasure. Esteemed doctors worked around the clock. They analyzed and studied the sick king with perplexity. Was it a virus? An infection? Is it contagious? Should they warn the people about the state of their leader? The doctors were at a loss. The king's wife, Queen Batiti, never left her husband's side. She sat by his bed all day, praying for him and patting his forehead with a damp cloth. One day, while Queen Bahiti gently told her husband stories as he dozed, she could see through the open window that a modest boat had pulled up to the dock. She watched as a tiny old man stepped onto it. He walked with a cane and a slight hunch. His beard was long and gray, and he wore a headscarf like a hat on his head. The elder was dressed in shabby clothing, but curiously, the guards seemed to welcome him. Who was he? She needed to find out. Queen Bahiti anxiously marched toward the palace's front entrance. Her long earrings dangled like chandeliers and bounced with each step she took as her heels pounded the floor. Standing by the castle's big golden doors was the king and queen's son, Prince Aru, who had also seen the visitor and now engaged him in conversation. Prince Aru was 19 years old and had the same hazel eyes as his father. He was tall, with a fit and toned build. He had a relaxed nature that made him popular with his subjects, especially those who worked in the palace. Mother, Prince Aru exclaimed, this is Dr. Wazir. He says that he can maybe help heal father. Dr. Wazir came from a faraway kingdom in which he tended to royals, keeping them healthy and strong through his personal potions. Your Highness, said the small man with a bow. When I heard through my channels that your husband had become ill, I just knew I had to come and see him for myself. While Prince Aru listened with his heart full of hope, Queen Bahiti wondered what this man could do that all the other doctors had not. But her desperation led her to at least give this sage a chance. What did they have to lose at this point? The three of them walked back to King Kafani's chamber. Queen Bahiti quietly opened the door to the room where King Kafani lay barely able to catch his breath. His skin was devoid of all color, and he was blanketed in a cold sweat. His eyes wrapped in white cloth to shield his blank stare from others. As Dr. Wazir quietly examined the patient, the queen and her son watched anxiously. Would yet another doctor be unable to save their precious king? But then the man turned and holding up his wizened index finger declared, I know how to help. Queen Bahiti and Prince Aru felt a wash in relief. 
after what had felt like an eternal, hopeless drought. Queen Bahiti's eyes teared up so at hearing good news that her long, thick eyeliner began to erode away. What can we do? How can you help? What happens next? The two hammered the man with questions. Dr. Wazir raised his hand again to silence them. I can make an ointment that will help your husband, your father. It should be applied to his forehead, the back of his neck, and the soles of his feet. Soon, he should start to regain his energy. Now, his eyesight may take a little longer. The only thing is, one of the ingredients is not readily available. You see, this ointment can only be made using the tears of the golden-headed fish from the Red Sea. There is but one fish in the whole sea like it. And alas, as an old man, I cannot be the one to retrieve it. Well, Prince Aru quickly spoke up. I'll go. I will go and find the golden-headed fish. My son, exclaimed the queen, the Red Sea is miles and miles away. You'll be walking through nothing but desert. You don't understand what a grueling journey this is. Dr. Wazir interjected. I must say as well that you will only have 100 days in which to complete the task. It may sound like a long time, but it will take you every minute of every day to find this precious fish. After the hundred days, I must return to my duties in my own kingdom. The tension in the room doubled in size, a thick silence hovering in the air. Prince Aru's voice cut the stillness like a knife. I must go. Please, mother, let me do this for father. It is quite possibly the last thing that I can do for him. All right, Aru, the queen relented but promise me that you won't go alone. Take your best guards and go with the gods. Early the next day, the sun was already punishingly hot. The prince and his guards were saddled up and ready to go. It would take three days and two nights to reach the Red Sea. The prince, along with four of the palace's toughest and most trusted men, Chike, Hanif, Ebo, and Okpara, would travel there by camel. As his mother saw him off, Prince Aru said to her, I need you to know, I will be home sooner than you think, and we will be able to heal father. He gave his mother's hands one last squeeze, and off he went with his men. The prince was grateful to have such reliable and loyal men with him on a mission like this. When each of the four was approached and asked to assist the prince on such a treacherous exposition, they responded, it would be an honor. How lucky I am to have these men by my side, Prince Aru thought to himself as his camel sauntered through the rolling sand dunes. He counted his blessings as a positive distraction from fretting about his father's frail state. The five men traveled with great adrenaline pumping through their veins. As they moved through the desert, feeling indestructible, they all thought nothing could stop them. Not the burning sun, nor thirst, nor hunger. At last, their first day was slowly coming to an end, and pastel colors filled the evening sky. 
After making camp and eating well, they found that tired as they were, they didn't want to sleep. Endless conversation filled the chilly night air as they burrowed into blankets, laid across the cool sand, and tried to stay warm by the tiny fire that Okpara had built. As talk faded and the flames waned, one of the camels suddenly awoke and started pacing back and forth, tugging on his tether. Each of the men took notice of how spooked their animal companion was. Then the source of the upset made itself known as a snake peeked out through the darkness and slithered its way into the center of the circle. The men went mad. They each jumped up and out of their blankets, shouting and scaring the camels even more. Then, in a flash, Hanif stretched out his long arm and snatched fruitlessly at the reptile. As if the snake had eyes all around its head, it swiveled without a moment's delay and slyly hissed. What do you think you're doing? A shocked Hanif backed away stiffly from the frightening reptile. He stumbled over his crumpled blanket and fell backwards onto the dusty sand. The snake continued, what were you going to do if you had actually gotten hold of me? Thrown me into the fire? Smothered me in the sand? Humans, you obliterate any animal that comes your way. You either become greedy and use us for your own gain, or become overwhelmed with such fear that you slay us, the innocent creatures. The snake calmed itself and its tone. I was passing by when I saw the glowing fire and thought I would just stop for a moment of rest and warm up a bit before continuing on my way. I didn't realize that my presence would cause such unease, the scaly reptile hissed. I hope that your next encounter goes better than this one, and that you think a bit more about who you're hurting and who you're actually helping. And with that, the snake slipped into the darkness of the night. The men stared at each other in disbelief. What just happened? Did a snake really open its mouth and talk to them? Okpara was the first one to speak up after the disconcerting exchange. It's time we all got some sleep. We need our rest for tomorrow. And he shook the sand off his blanket. Each man, feeling shame at the way he had reacted, quietly did the same. The incident replayed in Prince Aru's mind as he tried to settle himself on the sand. By steadying his thoughts to only focus on his breath, sleep overtook him at last. The next morning was rough. Still stung by the snake's words, each man was drained of his energy. It was as if the sun was somehow hotter, their mouths drier, their hunger pangs more intense than the day before. The prince decided to focus on the one constant positive that he was surrounded by the best group of men he knew. A long day stretched out ahead, and they embarked once again on their mission. After what felt like an eternity, the evening finally approached, and the five made camp for the night. They filled their bellies with supplies they'd brought, 
rounds of emmer wheat bread that had been filled in the center with roasted vegetables and garlic, and then laid their blankets atop the cool sand once again. The group of friends was subdued. Each had been dreaming about sleep all day, and now was finally his chance to meet up with it. As the prince rested his aching muscles, he admired the night sky, speckled like a canvas displaying an array of purples, blues, yellows, and greens, a backdrop for the burning celestial bodies. Prince Aru turned his weary gaze to his friends to remark upon the spectacular sight, but they were all sound asleep. That's okay, he thought. This moment will be just for me. The prince felt his eyelids becoming heavier by the second, and all that was left was the sound of crickets and the thought of stars above to drown out his thoughts as he too drifted off. The next morning brought another grueling journey. The men were like the undead, just bodies trying to make it from one day to the next without keeling over. How could it be that just two days ago, these same five men felt invincible? How did they go from being excited for what they would encounter to now being as burned out as last night's campfire? As they loped along on their camels, they simultaneously raised a hand to shield their eyes and to make sure that the streak of blue they saw on the horizon was not but an illusion. At long last, it was the Red Sea. With gentle kicks, they urged their camels to a trot, and the prince and his men soon spotted patches of palm trees lining the body of water. They had never felt such relief in their young lives. A slight cool air touched the men's skin as they approached the seaside. Thank you, Prince Aru thought to himself. Those were the only two words that bounced around in his head for the rest of the trek to the sea. He was grateful to soon be able to cool his skin in its waters, thankful for the returning wave of hope that washed over him. At last, they reached the Red Sea. Nothing could hold these men back. It was as though their primal instincts had kicked in. With renewed strength, they climbed off their camels and stumbled upon the sandy shore, anxious to submerge and cleanse themselves of the dirt that clung to each of them, physically and mentally. Prince Aru was overcome with emotion. He looked back on shore at his camel and sent another prayer of thanks to it for carrying him along this treacherous journey. For the next few days, the men laid low, sleeping plenty, fueling themselves with nature's sweet treats of figs and mangoes as they steadily regained their health and happiness. But then the hard work resumed. The young men would awaken at sunrise and gather their fishing nets and buckets and makeshift wooden rafts. Then they'd set out to find the golden-headed fish. And each day, they came up empty. As the weeks turned into months, the men felt as if they were getting farther and farther from finding their treasure, and time was running low. Finally, 
The morning of the hundredth day arrived, and the men had no golden-headed fish to show for their travels, their trials, their toils. Prince Aru was devastated. He felt that he had failed his father. As they prepared to head back to the palace, the prince flopped into the water one last time. He floated on his back, feeling as flat as a lily pad atop the ponds at home. Listlessly flipping onto his stomach, he submerged his face in the water. Ignoring the slight sting of the salt, he opened his eyes and observed the sandy sea floor. He watched the movement of the seaweed sway back and forth as underwater life navigated its undulations. Suddenly, a hint of gold caught his eye. Could it be? Wisely resisting the urge to gasp, which would have filled his lungs with water, he watched. Yes, it was indeed the golden-headed fish. Prince Aru gently kicked his legs and, smooth as an eel, glided towards his bounty and snatched it up. The prince rose to the water's surface and gingerly released the shiny, struggling fish into a pottery bowl resting hopefully on his wooden raft. Prince Aru could not believe it. Not only had he actually found the rare fish, but he located it at the last minute and when he was feeling more defeated than at any other time in his life. His eyes traced the scattered movements of the fish in the bowl. Seeming frightened at first, it suddenly stopped moving altogether and sank to the bottom. Prince Eru's heart rate quickened. Was the fish going to die? No, it's just in a state of shock, he reassured himself. Then he was reminded of his encounter with the snake and was jolted by guilt and shame. Was it right to use this innocent and unique creature for his own personal gain and bring it back to help heal his father? even though the fish would doubtless be killed in the process. Prince Aru knew in his soul that the answer was no. And so, with tears welling in his salt-reddened eyes, Prince Aru poured out the bowl and released the golden-headed fish back into the water. It drifted for a moment, and then, moving faster than anything Prince Aru had ever seen, returned to its seaweed home. As excruciating a decision as this was for Prince Aru, he knew that he had done the right thing. Besides, it was, after all, the hundredth day, and there was no way they would be able to make it home in time for Dr. Wazir to create the ointment they needed. He paddled back to shore, and despondent, the men packed up their belongings and started on the three-day journey home. Prince Aru planned to never speak a word of his encounter with the golden-headed fish to anyone. As the five men returned to the palace, there was no happy fanfare. Workers gasped and stared with grave faces. Their prince and his men had clearly arrived empty-handed. As a morose stillness fell upon the palace grounds, Prince Aru now had the difficult task of telling his father 
that they had failed their mission. He slowly entered the king's chambers. My son, I am so happy you are home and well. Please come close. Let me hold your hands, the king said with shortened breath. Prince Aru knelt by his father. His mother stood facing him from the other side of the bed. Did you find the golden-headed fish? No, father. I am so sorry. And he began to cry. That is all right, my dear boy. I know you did everything you could, and I am so appreciative of that. As your mother says, we will figure this out. As his eyes were completely covered by cloth, he could not see the guilt and sadness that showed plainly on his son's wretched face. The words spilled from Prince Aru's mouth. No, I failed you. I found the golden-headed fish, but I let it go. I couldn't hurt an innocent. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, he said through sobs. Queen Bahiti turned away. She could not bear to hear her son's confession. You what? said the king, instantly releasing his son's hands. I, I'm sorry, father. I just couldn't. I, enough. I don't want to hear it anymore. Get out. Prince Aru did as his weak father said, and he left the room. He stumbled down the long corridors and noticed Dr. Wazir standing at the front entrance. Your Royal Highness, bowed the old doctor. Dr. Wazir, what are you doing here? Prince Aru said, trying desperately to hide his tears. My dear boy, I never actually left, replied the old man. What, what do you mean? You said you were leaving after the hundredth day. Ah, but it was all a test, answered Dr. Wazir, with his now usual sweet smile. Come, boy, take a walk with me. The tall and the small navigated the long gold corridors. They walked out into the courtyard that was lined with limestone. Sitting in the center was a shallow, square pool of water with fountains that danced on each end. Glorious sunshine flooded the courtyard, nourishing the garden that lay within. Thick green vines crawled up the brick walls, covering them like a tapestry. It was the most beautiful garden there ever was. Flowers of every shape and color blossomed around the fountains and adorned the leafy vines. It was a place of pure peace and serenity a spot for healing, for consoling, for, could it be, hope? As soon as the prince and his companion walked into the courtyard, he could feel the tension in his head and muscles relax a bit. The two of them walked over to a bench that faced the water. The old man began. My name really is Dr. Wazir, but I'm not the kind of doctor you might think I am. I'm a shaman, or people might call me a medicine man. I live a life of simplicity and balance, and use what I have learned to teach others about what it means to find equanimity and to live in harmony with the world. 
I know that being born into this particular life does not make it easy for you to be your own person. And so when I had heard of your father's illness, I wanted to see just who you are, what you are made of. And I'm happy to say you surpassed even my highest hopes, my boy. Prince Aru was perplexed, but Dr. Wazir continued. People of this world are greedy. They do not appreciate Mother Nature and all her creatures. I knew that if someone of status such as yourself could let his actions speak louder than any words, could lead by example and make a bold statement through his compassion by not bringing back the fish, then this world could have a little bit of hope. I predicted correctly that you would jump at the opportunity to embark on a journey to find the golden-headed fish. I also knew you'd have a decision to make, and my dear prince, you made the right one, Dr. Wazir said as a warm smile spread across his face. Had you brought back the fish, you see, it's very unlikely it would have survived the trip home. And even if it had, there's no telling whether or not it would even have been healthy enough to use to heal your father. It was an extremely difficult choice, but you made the humane one. As Prince Aru digested the information, he asked, I guess that the snake was all part of your plan as well? Oh no, that was actually just a happy coincidence. I can't explain how that happened. The shaman said that since Prince Aru had shown compassion, kindness for nature, was circumspect and wise, he would happily heal the king, and this time, no ointment or any kind of medication would be needed. Together they walked back to the king's bedroom. Three times they knocked. Enter, said Queen Bahiti. The door opened a crack to reveal the king lying with his eyes still bandaged up, workers hovering and circling, busily and quietly tending to his every need. Who is there? I want no visitors, grumbled King Kafani. It is I, father, replied the prince. King Kafani responded with stiff silence. I have brought Dr. Wazir with me. He said that he knows how to heal you, even without the ointment. The old shaman approached the bed. He started at King Kafani's head and put his hands out in front of the dying man's temples. But he didn't touch the king, instead just held his palm steady. The doctor closed his eyes and focused all his energy on the patient. Those looking on observed that the shaman appeared to be performing some kind of Reiki, an ancient energy healing practice. He continued to do this all over King Kafani's body until he got to the feet. Could it be? The king's breathing seemed to already be getting steadier and stronger. Then Dr. Wazir moved his hands back to King Kafani's eyes. This was going to take a lot of the healer's focus. He held his palms out again, and heat radiated from them. Energy transferred like a thin mist upon King Kafani's eyes. After several minutes, the shaman stirred from his meditative state. 
his frail fingers gently unwrapped the cloth from the king's eyes. Everyone in the room held his and her breath. King Kafani slowly opened his heavy eyelids. He squinted as light came pouring in through his sensitive pupils. Finally, after months of darkness, he could see again. The king's weak arms reached out for his family. I, I can see you, I can see you, he exclaimed, as the tears began to seep from the outer corners of his eyes. His body, rigid and stiff due to months of bed rest, suddenly radiated vitality. What had seemed like a breathing corpse was now a healthy, moving man. Soon word of the king's miraculous recovery spread far and wide. Massive celebrations rang throughout the palace for days. Workers joined the festivities on their nights off. They partied and guzzled ka-amet, or beer flavored with ginger, as the royals and their guests sipped their spiced wines. As days passed and the festivities wound down, King Kafani reflected upon how harsh he had been with his son, and he took the extraordinarily humbling position of apologizing to him. He was proud of his boy for having chosen to save the fish. As the years passed, King Kafani, Queen Batiti, and Prince Aru made a tradition of inviting Dr. Wazir to their palace to celebrate the anniversary of the king's healing. And each year, Prince Aru would return to the Red Sea on a soul-nourishing trip to find the golden-headed fish. Whenever he was lucky enough to lay eyes upon it, he would respectfully admire this fish from afar, marveling at the miracle of its beauty, of its very existence. And then Prince Aru would head homeward again, grateful, always grateful, as I am to you for our time together here. Now, my friend, drift off and sweet dreams. <laughs>